Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the very first time that the Earth was circumnavigated. That is, in other words, the first time that someone travelled all the way around the planet and ended up back where they started in the beginning. You might have heard of this story before. It's closely associated with a Portuguese explorer named Ferdinand Magellan. Uh, who was in charge of a Spanish voyage that aimed to reach the East Indies, Indonesia, uh, these days by sailing west from Europe rather than east. Now, I'll tell you, this is an absolutely terrific tale suggested by alert listener Iskalap, who pointed out uh, when writing in just how well suited uh, this topic is to this dumb podcast because it's got, uh, well, a, a long list of things that, uh, you know, you'd associate with half our history by now. Naval history, we all love a bit of naval history. Uh, plenty of it only got worse from there, which was obviously, you know, a mainstay of this, uh, this podcast. Mutiny, betrayal, we've had a fair bit of that too, yep, as well. Um, and of course, uh, blood and guts and an horrible murder as well. So, uh, it, it, I mean, look, thanks to Esclave for se- sending in uh, this uh, this suggestion, Magellan's Voyage, as a topic, because uh, I tell you what, not only is it is it perfectly suited for the vibe of half us history, uh, I did learn a lot while researching this, and uh, I bet you'll learn a fair few thing a fair few new things today uh, as well, things you might never have. Uh, wondered about stuff that you may, may have thought about without ever realizing that uh, it was the way that it was things, some things that are very very bloody interesting indeed so uh let's uh again l- l- there's a lot to cover a lot to cover such you know things such as how the pacific ocean got its name uh so one of the very odd side effects of sailing westward westward for a very long time so uh let's jump in get underway with the story of uh of the very first time the, pl- the planet was circumnavigated here we go <clears throat> going all the way back all the way back to 1494 here, right at the end of the 15th century. So I can tell you about a document called the Treaty of Tordesillas. So after Christopher Columbus returned from his voyage to the New World, um, both obviously the Spanish and the Portuguese, they scrambled to colonise as much new territory as they could. And they obviously came into conflict. So they signed this treaty. And what it basically did was chop the world in half from north to south along a line that roughly went down the middle of the Atlantic. Now, the Portuguese, they got all the land on the east of the line and the Spanish got all the, got everything on the west. So, um, you know, broadly speaking, the, the, American, the Americas went to the Spanish and uh, Africa, um, uh, you know, India, the, the East Indies, they all went to the Portuguese. Never mind that, you know, most of this land was inhabited and had been for millennia. Obviously, that didn't count back then. Don't, don't forget about that. Um, anyway, this Treaty of Tordesillas, it's duly agreed upon and it's signed by both Spain and Portugal, uh, while other European colonial powers uh, largely ignore it altogether. But it's important for our story because of what the, what the Portuguese found in uh, in quote-unquote, their half of the world in India and Southeast Asia, just a whole bunch of spices. And as we move into the 16th century, Portugal is making money hand over fist off the spice trade and, and Spain wants to get in on the action here. But there's a problem under the Treaty of, the, of uh, Tordesillas. They can't sail east around Southern Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, because those trade routes, uh, those trade routes uh, all, you know, belonged to, uh, to the Portuguese. Bugger. So, the Spanish instead started sending people westward, right, hoping to find a route that would lead uh, to Southeast Asia and the rich spice-filled islands that way. 
And this is where Ferdinand Magellan comes into the story, as he was one such explorer sent off on this quest to find a westward trade route from Spain to Asia. Now, Magellan, as I mentioned before, he wasn't even Spanish. He was Portuguese himself. However, that, uh, he, didn't get all, he didn't get on all too well uh, with the Portuguese king, Manuel I. Uh, Magellan had sailed throughout Asia on Portuguese ships in the past, and he'd heard of the richness of some of the Spice Islands there. And so he began to pester Emmanuel to fund a trip with him at the helm uh, to go and, and you know find some of these new islands and, and, and set up uh, Portuguese interests there. But Manuel, he wasn't have any, having any of this at all. And so Magellan eventually just gave up and instead more or less defected to Spain uh, after trying to get the king on side. He more or less defected to the Spanish side instead in 1517. Now, he's got some mates over in Spain and they put together a plan for a big voyage across the Atlantic, past the Americas and across the oceans that lay beyond and then on to Asia. So with this plan made up, he goes, uh, Magellan, he goes and meets with the Spanish king, King Charles I, and he says to him, listen here, your majesty. I reckon, listen to this, I reckon that we can find a way west, them Spice Islands, beautiful place one of my mates told me about called the Moluccas, right? They'll be be part of Indonesia uh, when people listen to this about 500 years. Bloody full of spices they are, though. What do you reckon? And Charles goes, mate, listen, I'm only 18. I'm not Holy Roman Emperor Charles V yet, but this sounds bloody excellent. I'd love to get on board in a... a in, in a figurative sense, look, I'm going to be travelling for most of my career, but I probably probably won't come with you on this journey I'll, on board in in a, in a figurative rather than a literal sense. A bit busy here, you know, to be honest. Got a lot going on. Anyway, what's the story? And Magellan says, mate, what we do, right, is you know how uh, Christopher Columbus, you know, he, he thought you could re- reach Asia by sailing west. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, he's a total flogger. He made a big mess of it all. But, uh, you know, he thought he got there when he hadn't, obviously. But uh, listen, I reckon, I reckon he might have been onto something in that with I, that idea. And I reckon I can get across. I reckon I can find a way, no worries. And the king says, well, I'll tell you what, though, that'd be bloody excellent. I mean, we can, you know, sail these. We, 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 otherwise, we're having to sail these bloody piss off the Portuguese. So if we can get to them spice islands around the west way, that'd be perfect, mate. And Magellan goes, yeah, mate, look, no worries at all. I'm your man, not a problem. Um, you know, old mate Vasco Nunez de Balboa, he saw that great big ocean on the other side of Panama. I'm just going to find a way to that, sail across it, and it'll be all the spices. You can eat no dramas at all. Charles says, mate, I love this plan. Let's do it. Absolutely. No worries. I'll found, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fund your ships, your tucker. And I'll tell you what, if you, uh, if you can find a way west, I'll give you a bloody island. Order yourself with more money than you know what to do with. How does that sound? Magellan goes, mate, oh, your majesty, look, you're too bloody kind. That's very, that's, that's very good of you, mate. All right, listen, I'm going to go and get ready. I'll see you later, alligator. Good luck fighting them, you know, bloody bastard Protestants for the rest of your career. Hey, let's, uh, let's hope you give them a damn good thrashing. Anyway, so the voyage is approved. Magellan, he makes his preparations. He readies five ships and he stocks them with two years' worth of food and other supplies. 80% of these, these supplies are hardtack and wine. Um, and each of these five ships, right, uh, was met with an interesting and very different fate. So try to remember them. I'll remind you as we go, but there are five different ships and five different things happened to these five different ships. So there was the flagship that carried uh, Magellan as the commander. It was called the Trinidad, and it was the second biggest ship. And then uh, in order of biggest to smallest uh, outside of the Trinidad, the biggest ship was the San Antonio, and then the Concepcion, and then the Victoria, uh, these four were all Carracks. Uh, while there was a fifth and the smaller ship, it was called the Santiago, and it was a caravel. So you got the Trinidad, Magellan's uh, flagship, three other Carracks, the San Antonio, the Concepcion, and the Victoria, and then a little uh, a little caravel called the Santiago. So these are the five ships. Uh, they were crewed by a total of 270 men. Uh, originally, Magellan had wanted to bring a lot of his old Portuguese crewmates with him, uh, but the Spaniards, they weren't too hot on this, and so most of them were actually replaced by, uh, by Spanish sailors instead. In fact, more than a few people were suspicious of Magellan, as he was Portuguese, and uh, even many of the other commanding officers weren't big fans of his, uh, to be honest, even on the voyage itself. Anyway, the bulk of the crew is Spanish, as I say, although there were about 40 Portuguese blokes, as well as some Italians, some Frenchmen, a handful of other nationalities as well. 
Uh, even amongst the officers, too, you've got blokes from all over the place. Magellan, obviously, he's Portuguese. His joint commander is a Spaniard named Juan de, de Cartagena. Uh, there was another bloke named uh, Juan Sebastian Alcano, who was Basque. Uh, Magellan's personal assistant, Antonio Pigafetta, who actually kept a, a very detailed journal of this entire uh, of this entire adventure here. Uh, he's Venetian. Uh, Magellan also had a slave with him, a fellow named Enrique of Malacca, who was either from Malacca in um, uh, in Malaysia or nearby Sumatra, which is now part of Indonesia. Uh, Magellan had taken possession of Enrique uh, when sailing through Asia on a Portuguese ship years and years before, and actually brought him along on this voyage as well. Given the fact that they were, you know, attempting to uh, to make their way back to uh, the uh, the East Indies, back to the uh, the area that uh, Enrique originally came from. So anyway. With everything in readiness, on the 20th of September 1519, Magellan and his fleet, they leave mainland Europe. They set sail from San Luca de Barrameda in Spain, and they are off on this enormous voyage. They travel first to the Canary Islands, where they took on some more supplies. But Magellan there also received some dire news, because he found out that there was a mutinous plot against him. With the Spaniard Juan de Cartagena as its ringleader, he received a secret message warning him of this uh, of this treachery. Uh, and remember, of course, the reason for Cartagena's uh, mutinous uh, rumblings was because many of the, the Spaniards on the voyage were suspicious of the Portuguese Magellan. Uh, he also learnt, however, as well, further bad news for him here, that King Manuel I of Portugal was also none too pleased by Magellan defecting and going off and sailing for the Spanish. And so he had sent ships of his own off to arrest Magellan and haul him back to Portugal. Now, this last bit of news made Magellan make an unorthodox decision uh, in order to evade any Portuguese pursuers because he changed the planned course um, and instead skirted further south along the African coast. Now, Obviously, this put him at odds with uh, Cartagena and the and the rest of the Spaniards, who said that they should go west, not south, stick to the original course. And so things got worse between these two. But sailing south rather than west originally at least meant that any of the Portuguese ships that were uh, sailing after them weren't able to find them, and so they were they they at least evaded that threat there. Anyway, sailed south for a time and then west and reached the equator. Uh, got through some terrible storms that lasted about a fortnight, and then headed out west across the Atlantic properly. Um. And there were more than a few issues during this part of the journey, including one of the sailors actually being sentenced to death for horrific misconduct. Um, and after this trial, there was also a rather half-hearted attempt for at a mutiny. Uh, don't worry, there's obviously better mutiny stuff coming up later. This half-hearted one doesn't really count. Uh, but Cartagena finally round on Magellan, told him to stick it up his ass. He wasn't going to follow his commands anymore and told two other officers to attack Magellan. Uh, now, wisely, they didn't. Uh, and armed marines arrested Cartagena and locked him up. Uh, Magellan was going to execute him too, but it was actually talked out of it. He was persuaded not to by the other captains. Instead, Cartagena was confined to one of the ships and replaced as, uh, as a captain by one of the other officers. And that was that for now. Anyway, we'll come back to more mutiny. Don't even worry about that. Finally, towards the end of 1519, the, the, the fleet uh, successfully crossed the Atlantic and arrived on the South American coast on what is now Cabo de Santo Agostinho, in Brazil. Now, that big imaginary line that I mentioned before from the Treaty of Tordesillas, it didn't go directly down the middle of the Atlantic. It actually um, went through land at some point. It went it went through what the coastline of, of what is now Brazil. And, and, you know, this is one of the reasons that Brazil uh, it ended up, obviously, obviously it was a Portuguese colony. They all speak Portuguese in, in Brazil. And this is one of the reasons why is because this, this line actually, um, Brazil sort of sticks out so far into the Atlantic that it was actually bifurcated by this line uh, from the uh, from the Treaty of Tordesillas. So uh, technically this area, once again, in inverted commas, in inverted commas belonged uh, to Portugal and not Spain. 
And uh, there were some Portuguese settlements along what would become the Brazilian coast as uh, as Magellan landed there, but not all of them were permanently inhabited. Uh, one such settlement was called Rio de Janeiro. And when Magellan and uh, his fleet rocked up there, sure enough, the Portuguese weren't around. So on the 13th of December, the fleet cruises into the, into a harbour empty of Portuguese ships uh, to stop and repair uh, their own ships, resupply themselves and rest up a bit. Although, by the sounds of it, they didn't get much in the ra- in the way of rest because check this out, right? The indigenous population of the area uh, in and around Rio de Janeiro, they'd been in a spot of bother. It hadn't rained there for two months. Now, remember, of course, you know, this is December. We're in the southern hemisphere, so the seasons are the right way around. And December is, you know, it's the summer, bloody hot, and, and now no rain for, you know, a long well, two months. I mean, unbelievable. That's, that's very, very bad luck. But wouldn't you know it? As soon as Magellan rocks up, the skies open and it starts to chuck it down. And the locals, they take this as an omen, right? They think, uh, you know, they think that these blokes turning up on ships have brought the rains with them and that's a miracle. And, you know, seeing as these ferociously Catholic Iberians never missed an opportunity, they very quickly converted all the indigenous people to Christianity um, and the locals, they were big, big fans of Magellan and, and, and the other visitors, and they happily traded food and other bits and pieces for the stuff that Magellan had brought, you know, knives, combs, bells, mirrors, all, all sorts of little trinkets, bloody loving it. Meanwhile, Magellan and his crew, they're getting yams and pineapple and parrot feathers and all sorts of other exotic goods. Uh, and they're also becoming willful clients in what's often called the world's oldest profession. So having a having a, having a fantastic time there. Uh, the fleet stayed in Rio for nearly two weeks, drinking, partying, rooting, having a, having a bloody great time. But finally, on the 27th of December, they regretfully set sail with the locals actually chasing them out in canoes as they set off begging them to stay. They were such big fans of, uh, of these visitors. Anyway, they set off all the same. And uh, now that they'd reached the Americas, Magellan began the search for this strait that he believed would take the fleet across the west uh, to the Westwood Ocean. Or indeed, you know, the, the, indeed, even if he couldn't find the passages, at least looking for the southern tip of the continent. So they put themselves in a fair bit of danger as they searched because they sailed much closer to land than you normally would. This ran the risk of hitting shallow water or a shoal and running the ships aground. Now, they had a couple of false alarms when uh, when looking for this passage. Uh, For example, when they arrived at Rio de la Plata, uh, a huge estuary where these days you'll find Uruguay's Montevideo and Argentina's uh, Buenos Aires. It's a huge, big estuary. Um, it's the it, it's that bloody massive, in fact, that when they rounded the headland, they thought they'd found a westward passage. Uh, they thought they'd actually found, uh, you know, a, a way through uh, the continent of South America. Uh, but as after they sailed up the estuary, they realised that they were hitting fresh water. They took sounding to realise that it was getting very shallow. And uh, after hitting fresh water, they knew that, of course, it was heading inland, not, uh, not you know, across the entire, entire continent. So uh, they had to turn back. No luck there. And they continued south after this as well, searching in vain for this passage that, of course, we obviously these days we know just just isn't there. And January turned into February and February into March. And as they got further south and as the weeks passed, of course, it began to get colder. Magellan knew that he wouldn't be able to keep sailing south like this with winter approaching. And so he began to look for a place to spend the winter safely ashore instead. And so on the 31st of March, 1520, the fleet arrived at a natural harbour that offered some protection from the elements and they landed. They named it uh, Port St. Julian or Puerto San Julian, as it's still known today. And, uh, and it was here the next day that the real mutiny 
took place. Here it comes. Here comes the good stuff. Didn't waste any time. They pull into this harbour, wait a single day, and then Cartagena, he's back off doing what he does best. Magellan's decision to spare him, Magellan's decision to spare Cartagena, uh, came back to bite him on the arse a little bit, because in the weeks and months since the Atlantic crossing, Cartagena had gotten the ears of some of the other captains and brought them on site. Uh, the captains of the Victoria and the Concepcion, they were they were they were now in. They weren't happy with uh, they weren't happy with Magellan. They were now in on this mutinous plan. They believed that Magellan wasn't up to the job. Was putting all their lives at risk with his leadership. You know, with the course he was taking, with the the way that he was rationing food, or basically any anything could, that could be beaten up into a you know into a crisis mode. It was, and so uh, you know now there's a fair bit of momentum behind this uh, this mutiny attempt. So. Just after midnight on the 2nd of April, Cartagena led 30 or so armed men onto the San Antonio, one of the other ships, stabbed the captain a bunch of times, he'd later die of his wounds, and took over the ship. And this meant now that the mutineers had three of the five ships. Magellan now only controlled the Santiago and his flagship, the Trinidad. So the next morning, the mutineers gathered to plan their next move. However, they hit a snag. Because as, as sailors were moving around the, uh, the, the, these mutinous ships, a longboat full of some of the sailors from these mutinous vessels drifted off course and was captured by Magellan and his loyalists on the Trinidad. Now, these sailors, voluntarily or not, I'm not sure, but they did sell out the mutineers. They told Magellan of the mutinous plans of Cartagena and his, uh, and his, his crew there. And so Magellan... He decided enough was enough. He was going to nip this whole thing in the bud, and so he hatched a cunning plan. Rather than you know uh, draw up the ships for battle, try to fight a you know a pitched fight against these mutineers. No, Magellan was going to take a rather more underhanded approach. He stripped the sailors of their clothes. The captured sailors were were stripped naked. Well, maybe not naked. I don't. I mean, I wasn't able to verify they were stripped naked. They definitely took most of their clothes off. I don't know if they're, they're you know bare asses winking in the breeze, but they definitely uh, they definitely did have have their clothes taken off, right? And these clothes were used instead to dress up some of his marines instead. So Magellan put the clothes on some of you know the the, the more or less soldiers that he brought with him. Magellan then sent these disguised marines back over to the mutinous ships on the longboat, right? And shortly thereafter, he sent one of his officers, Gonzalo de Espinosa, over on a different skiff to negotiate. Espinosa, uh, is, he, he goes over, he says he's got a message uh, from Magellan, a sealed letter, uh, and, and he's uh, immediately granted an audience with the captain of the Victoria, Luis Mendoza. But rather than deliver a message from Magellan, he instead pulls out his sword and delivers that straight into Mendoza's bloody throat, mate. Uh, the disguised Marines, they now leap into action. They seize control of the now captainless Victoria and they tip the balance of power back in favour of the Loyalists by capturing the ship. So Cartagena, he realises, whoops, this, this mutiny has, has just gone belly up already and attempted to flee. But Magellan, he blocked the entrance to the bay with his three ships and ordered a broadside fired at the mutinous ships and they quickly surrendered. Cartagena and the other mutineers were, were captured. And I'll tell you what, Magellan, he doesn't muck around this time. The other mutinous captain, Gaspar de Casada, was beheaded and then drawn and quartered, and also Mendoza's corpse was also was also drawn and quartered, just for good measure. Uh, and these corpses were displayed in gibbets as a grisly warning to the ones who weren't executed. Now, obviously, Magellan couldn't execute all the mutineers. He wouldn't have enough crew members to sail the fleet. 
But he whipped them into line. I can tell you what. Check this out, right? Because about 40 other uh, complicit sailors, they were clapped in chains and they were forced to undertake hard labour for the entire winter. They spent months careening, repairing and cleaning the ships, doing all sorts of, uh, of, you know, very, very hard work indeed. As for Cartagena himself, he wasn't executed. He was instead marooned, along with another mutineer, a mutinous priest, Pedro Sanchez de la Reina. Later on that winter... Cartagena and Dilarona, they were taken to a small island off the coast. They were given a bit of fresh water and a small amount of hardtack, and they were left behind to fend for themselves on this island. And neither man was ever heard from again. However, some say that even to no, they're dead. They're totally. They're absolutely. I mean, they definitely died. Forget about it. There's no. They were left in the you know in the middle of nowhere on an island with hardly any water, hardly any food. They died. They definitely died. Anyway. Before the end of April, right, before the end of April, Magellan decided uh, not to sit on his hands about this whole, um, uh, you know, this whole searching for the passage business here. And so he actually ordered the Santiago uh, to scout out the coast to the south. Now, the Santiago didn't find the passage westward, but they did find another sheltered river inlet. And this one was full of fish and wood and penguins and all sorts of other resources that the fleet could make use of. Now, they named it the Santa Cruz River, and it bears this name uh, to this very day. And after spending some time exploring it, the crew of the Santiago, they go, well, listen, we got to go back and uh, we got to go back and tell Magellan and the rest of them about this place because it's bloody brilliant. Look at all these fish. Look at all these penguins. There's food all, all over the place. Let's, uh, let's go and uh, let them know what's going on. So they got ready to sail back to the fleet and tell them of their discovery. However, disaster. The Santiago got caught in a storm and ran aground. Oh, bloody no, mate. Luckily, however... Uh, almost all the crew members survived and they made a camp on the shore. But now they're stuck miles and miles from the rest of the fleet, right? They've sailed all this way south to uh, the Santa Cruz River. And uh, to make matters worse, they hardly managed to bring any supplies at all from the ship before it capsized. So they're stuck living off whatever they could scrounge locally. And obviously they couldn't stay there forever. So two of the sailors, bloody brave fellows they were, right? They volunteered to make the journey north back to Puerto San Julian on foot. These two blokes spent 11 days trekking northwards along the coast, hardly anything in the way of food or water, and after what must have been an absolutely gruelling journey, they finally made it back to the fleet. They told Magellan what had happened, and Magellan leapt into action once again, immediately sent off a search party that was uh, that was sent to, uh, you know, to go and, and find and retrieve these poor sailors that had been on the Santiago, sailed south there like this. Anyway, the, uh, the, the rescue party, it sets off. Uh, it heads off to search for these, uh, these stranded sailors, sets off to find the rest of the group. However, after all this time, you know, uh, camping ashore, fending for their lives, desperately struggling to stay alive in this, uh, in this wilderness, these sailors were fine. They're absolutely fine. They were still, they were, they were fine. They were still alive. They were, you know, they were tired, a bit hungry, uh, but uh, they'd obviously hadn't had a great time, but uh, they were safe and sound. And happily, they all returned to uh, Puerto San Julian, but not for very long, because obviously Magellan had been told of the Santa Cruz River. They'd been told how many penguins there were there to eat. And, uh, and Magellan goes, bloody excellent. All right, pack it up, boys. We are moving. So the remaining four ships, the Santiago was obviously lost forever after capsizing. The remaining four ships, they sailed south to the uh, to the Santa Cruz River and they spent the remainder of the winter there. It's in mid-October that they finally get ready to pack up and leave when the weather had uh, improved to the point they could resume their journey southwards in, uh, in search of this fabled passage. And so on the 18th of October, 
The fleet headed off again, picking up their search, and three days later, they sailed past another headland with another great big bay behind it. Now, they named this uh, this headland, they named this cape Cape Virginis, and they began to explore the bay. You know, once again, a great big body of water. They were hoping that there was going to be some kind of inlet or passage or something that uh, that would lead across uh, to the other side of the continent there. But then, as they're as they're exploring, oh no. Great another disaster strikes, another great big bloody storm, another disaster here. The Trinidad and the Victoria, they were able to escape to the safety of the open ocean. Obviously, no good staying in the bay if you might run aground and get their and get their ship wrecked. But the other two ships, right, the Concepcion and the San Antonio, they were pushed further into the bay by the storm. Now, total disaster, you'd think, total disaster here. Uh, Magellan is there, he's biting his nails down to the bone, he's there on the Trinidad waiting for any time, any any sign of their uh, of their safe return after the storm. And for days and days, there's no sign of them at all. But check this out. The other two ships, not only were they safe and sound, not only did after three days they return and reunite where, uh, you know, the conception of the San Antonio sailed back out of the bay and, uh, and returned to Magellan, they came with the most extraordinary tale. Check this out. The storm had blown them into the bay, but it had blown them further than that. It had blown them into a strait that couldn't be seen from the open ocean. Now, wondering if this could potentially be the passage that they were seeking, my goodness me, these two ships began to sail up it. They took soundings to, to test if it got shallower, and, uh, and and they, you know, checked the water to see if it, it was going to remain salty the further up the this passage they got. And sure enough, as they continued to sail, it became clear that this wasn't an estuary, it wasn't a river inlet, the water remained salty and it stayed very deep. This was the real deal. This was the passage that was going to lead through the South American continent. And, I mean, before I re- researched this podcast, I didn't even know this passage, passage existed. You don't have to sail all the way around the bottom, the south of, uh, of South America. That, that little, um, the bit at the bottom, Cape Horn, that looks like an actual, you know, horn, the, 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 the sort of curved hook thing at the bottom. That's an island. I had no idea of this, right? There is a strait that that runs north of that is actually you know a bit of a shortcut uh, from uh, f- you know from the east to the west from the Atlantic to the Pacific there or the, from the west to the east, um, uh, and and here it had just been discovered by these blokes and as part of Magellan's uh, part of Magellan's exp- expedition. So Magellan he named this newly discovered passage he named it All Saints Channel, but that's not what we call it today. The name it bears today is of course the Strait of Magellan. And these four ships, they made their way through this passage. They split up occasionally to explore the various offshoots and islands in the strait, you know, mapping it out the whole time, figuring out what it looked like. And obviously they would uh, they would then uh, meet back up, continue, and they'd, they'd rendezvous and, and continue on together after having split up a little bit. However, after one of these incidents, one such, uh, one such split here, the San Antonio never returned. What happened, I hear you ask? Well, you'll never guess. <laughs> Another mutiny. <laughs> another another mutiny, mate. That's what happened here. The officers of the San Antonio, they all had a huge chip on their shoulder uh, when it came to Magellan. And they just decided one day that enough. Enough was enough. They, they decided they're going to turn the ship around and sail back to Spain. The ship's pilot, uh, who was loyal to Magellan, he attempted to forestall this. He tried to stop it by uh, steering the ship back to the rendezvous point, as well as firing the ship's cannons and setting off smoke signals. But all of this was in vain because he was eventually overpowered by the mutineers, third time lucky, I suppose. I mean, you know, eventually one of these mutinies was bound to be successful eventually, right? Um, and the pilot, he was clapped in irons and the ship was turned around and it was sailed back to Spain, leaving the voyage forever. Now, these blokes, after getting back to Spain, they basically slandered the hell out of Magellan. They made it sound like he was an awful bloke. 
um, and uh, were never punished for having mutineered. So a, a bit of a you know a bit of a surprise there. And the pilot himself, he was in prison for for about a year. Uh, before he was finally let go, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a very very strange incident that this this you know ship full of mutineers weren't punished after they returned back to their native Spain. But that's the way that it goes there anyway. And and Magellan now is reduced to just three ships. He's reduced to just three ships, but he hasn't given up hope. He believes that he's going to be able to find the San Antonio after the San Antonio failed to return to the rendezvous point. Um, Magellan goes, right, look, we can't give up on them. We've got to find them, right? So for several weeks, right, despite the fact they'd found these passages, despite the fact that they were, you know, mere days away from its end, they uh, Magellan was determined not to give up on the uh, on the San Antonio. He's going to find his ship, right? So while searching, uh, a small uh, contingent was sent off through the strait to find its end, and they and they did find it too. The scouting vessel returned after having uh, explored the uh, the strait to its its end, bringing the joyful news that they had found the end of the strait and uh, and that it did indeed lead to this great big open ocean beyond. Uh, Magellan apparently wept tears of joy at hearing this news, but still he didn't make sail to the end of the passage. Uh, as I say, the remaining three ships they spent weeks searching for the San Antonio before finally, with a heavy heart giving up and obviously you know they, i don't know what they thought they i don't know if they wondered if it had been sunk or wrecked or lost or whatever but uh whatever they decided upon whatever whatever conclusion they came to the san antonio had left the fleet for good and was and would never return so now with uh with the with the search concluded the the fleet the of three ships now sailed westward along the strait and so it was that finally on the 28th of november 1520 Magellan's fleet finally sailed out into what we know today, of course, as the Pacific Ocean. But why do we know it as the Pacific Ocean? Why? How did it get its name? It was, in fact, Magellan himself who named it. He called it the Pacific Ocean due to how still, how calm and how peaceful it was, right? How uh, the, the waters there were, right? Uh, in comparison with the storms and the winds and the currents that they'd sailed through so far. Now, the Mar Pacifico name stuck, and it remains to this day, of course. I don't know how actual peaceful the Pacific really is day to day, uh, but the calm waters and the favourable winds that Magellan enjoyed on this specific day, on the 28th of November, 500 years ago, meant that that is how the ocean became known from then onwards. So if you have ever doubted the saying, that first impressions matter, my friends, think of Magellan and the Pacific Ocean. Because the Pacific, with all its, you know, storms and, and, and rowdy weather and all the rest of it, just because it was behaving itself in this part of the world on the 28th of November 500 years ago, we still know it today as the peaceful ocean. So first impression, the first impression is certainly most the most important. Anyway, Magellan had succeeded. He had found a passage westward for Spain to use. Bloody legend, get around him. All that remains is to make it to the Spice Islands of Asia, and he's got it made in the shade. He's just got to go this, this, you know, this slight distance further to the East Indies, and uh, and that is going to be that. And here is the good part, because you know I say this slight distance to the East Indies. That's what he thought. Obviously, back then people had no idea as to the actual size of the Earth. People made you know good guesses throughout history, of course, but it would be a long time before the question would be settled altogether. And in the meantime, Magellan, this is not a joke, Magellan is left expecting the remainder of the journey to be a very short one indeed. He honestly thought, imagine this, the poor bloke, right? He honestly thought that the trip from the western end of the Strait of Magellan, right, towards the southern tip of South America, he honestly thought that this journey from there to the islands that make up modern-day Indonesia would take about three or four days. 
In reality, it would take three or four months before the fleet would actually make landfall again. Magellan just had no idea how bloody big the Pacific Ocean actually is. He thought that the, you know, the, the, the stretch of water that separated South America from the East Indies, right, would be, uh, you'd be able to sail across that in a couple of days. And he was, I mean, I, I, I mean, unfortunately, right, he missed the mark by, by a, a fair bloody bit, you'd have to say. But what's worse, right, what's worse, the course that he charted across the Pacific Ocean meant that he missed many of the small islands dotted throughout it altogether, which meant that the fleet wasn't able to resupply with fresh food and water throughout this gruelling three-and-a-half-month journey. They only passed two tiny outcroppings of land, both of which were far too small to land on, right? And so this journey, it dragged out with no end in sight, and an old enemy of seafarers everywhere reared its ugly head. I'm not talking about mutiny this time, not even talking about sirens or even the dreaded Kraken. No, this time it was short rations and, of course, scurvy. James Lynn from episode 62, he's still centuries away, mate. And scurvy, it's not well understood at all. It ravaged the crew. It claimed the lives of 19 of the 166 sailors that still remained. Interestingly, however, it didn't affect any of the officers as their superior rations afforded them access to preserved quince which had the critical vitamin C that they needed to fight off the disease. All the same, conditions were terrible as the ships continued west-northwest from the strait and, and crossed the equator. It was hot, much of the crew was sick, and there was such a desperate shortage of food on these ships that many of the sailors went to unbelievably extreme lengths to fill their bellies. They ate leather straps from the rigging. They would uh, soak it in, soak this leather in seawater and then cook it a little bit and they would eat that. They ate sawdust. They even ate rats that they caught below decks. You can hardly imagine how awful it must have been. Three days, three days, says Magellan. Don't even worry about it. Three days, fellas. We'll be across there in a jiffy. But then three months later, they are still stuck at sea. Thankfully, at long, long last, on the 6th of March, 1521, three months and 20 days after they entered the Pacific Ocean from the Strait of Magellan, the fleet arrived at the Mariana Islands and landed on the island of Guam. And there they received an interesting welcome from the indigenous population, the Chamorro. They cruised out, the Chamorro cruised out to Magellan ships on outrigger canoes and just started nicking stuff off them. They took more or less everything that they could that was made of metal, uh, anything they could lay their hands on, and uh, then things turned violent as Magellan's crew members tried to stop them. One of the Chamorro was killed while Magellan's uh, sailors attempted to you know, defend their possessions from the, uh, from the Chamorro. Um, and the Chamorro fled. They stole one of the smaller ship's boats and they sailed back to the island with all of their ill-gotten gains uh, in tow. Now, obviously, this isn't a hugely nice thing to do there. You know, you should obviously respect other people's property. And uh, what the Chamorro did was, you know, not, not particularly, uh, not a particularly uh, defensible move there. But uh, Magellan's response was uh, hardly all that warranted or proportionate either, because uh, when it comes to respecting other people's property, Magellan certainly took it to another level. He organised a raiding party sent them ashore to retrieve the stuff that had been stolen, and just for good measure, they burnt down 50 or so tomorrow buildings and killed seven people. So, well and truly setting a precedent for European meddling in this part of the world, and uh, 
you know, certainly leaning into the the spirit of the age of colonialization. It has to be said. Anyway, after this encounter on Guam, this unfortunate encounter, Magellan's fleet continued westward, and on the 16th of March, they landed on the island of Hamonhan, which today is part of the Philippines. And this represented the very first recorded instance of European contact with the Philippines, or the islands that would go on to, you know, would go on to be known as the Philippines. Uh, although Hamonhan was uh, uninhabited at this point in history. Now, the fleet stayed on the island for about two weeks, uh, replenishing the stores and supplies, taking on fresh water, and then continued on the 27th of March. And the next day on the 28th, they approached the island of Limasawa and here encountered the locals in their canoes. And here, something interesting happened. I mentioned before that Magellan had a slave, Enrique of Malacca, who had been brought along uh, with the voyage so far. And it turned out that Enrique was able to talk to these locals in Malay. They could understand each other. Now, this not only confirmed that they had arrived in Southeast Asia and the East Indies, right, as planned, but it also meant that they got off to a much better start with the Limasawa natives than they did with the Chamorro. The Spanish went ashore and they met uh, they met the indigenous leader, a bloke whose name was Raja Kalambu, and things went very, very well indeed. Magellan impressed them with Spanish arms and armour, and it turned out that uh, the locals were very ready to trade uh, for the iron that the Spaniards had brought along. What did they have to offer for it? Ah, another metal, which they happily trade. They have to happily swapped it a one-to-one ratio. Give us a kilo of that iron, we'll give you a kilo of this. Oh, what? What's the metal? Oh, just gold. Just gold. Don't even worry about it. The Spaniards absolutely cleaned up here. They took advantage of the locals and their enormous wealth. Obviously, a classic colonialist move there. And that wasn't all. Magellan claimed the entire archipelago of islands that would go on to become the Philippines. He claimed for Spain. And he whacked a great big bloody cross on top of a hill. And on the 31st of March and Easter Sunday, he organised the first ever Catholic Mass in the Philippines. It seemed that Magellan got a bit of a taste for this sort of thing. You know, the riches and the conversions and everything else. Because after leaving Limasawa, he didn't sail towards the original goal of the Molucca Islands, uh, where all the uh, the spices were. Instead, he continued exploring the Philippines. He landed here, there and everywhere, claiming land for Spain, converting anyone and everyone who was the least bit interested. But this proved to be a bad move, ultimately. Uh, however, as it ended up backfiring on, uh, on Old Magellan uh, quite badly when he got to the island of Mactan. There... The natives resisted Christian conversion and they wouldn't submit to Spanish authority. And Magellan's response was one that, uh, well, look, you know, it seemed to have worked for him before. He sent a raiding party ashore to burn their homes to the ground. Uh, somehow, somehow, and this, you know, obviously beggars belief, but somehow this wonderful display of Christian benevolence didn't, uh, didn't quite convince the locals as to the purity of Magellan's cause. And so Magellan instead decided to put together a larger armed contingent and force the natives to uh, to accept Spanish rule. Now, this did not end up going very well for either Magellan or his crew, I have to say. It turns out that the 60 blokes that he got together, despite having, you know, vastly superior arms and armour, they were no match for the 1,500 natives that turned up to fight. The battle... Uh, as, as it's known today, the Battle of Mactan. The battle was fierce and it was bloody. And Magellan, who led the Spanish into the battle, copped a spear in the face straight away and just bloody died. Weren't expecting that, were you? You weren't expecting that. This is not a carefully planned piece of fiction with a resounding character arc. No, this is history where plot armour protects you just about as much as it did Ned Stark. Magellan, 
so often cited as the first person to circumnavigate the globe, barely got more than halfway around before being hacked to bits on a beach in Mactan, 12,000 kilometres from his native Portugal. The remaining Spaniards, uh, they fled from Mactan after this bloody and vicious defeat. Uh, but as you might expect, it only got worse from there. Brilliant. Because the survivors, right, in the wake of Magellan's death, they voted for new leadership. Uh, Duarte Barbosa and Juan Serrano were appointed as, uh, as the new commanders of the voyage. Uh, but they didn't last long either. I can tell you this, thanks to Magellan's slave, Enrique, right? Now, in his will, Magellan had freed Enrique, but as Barbosa and Serrano still needed him as a translator, they refused to free him. Now, this also proved to be a bad move because Enrique double-crossed them at the very first opportunity. A fellow by the name of Raja Humaban, right, one of the blokes that Magellan had converted, actually invited the, uh, the remains of the Spanish fleet uh, to, to come to a big banquet, right? Big banquet, excellent, big feast, big celebration. Now, Enrique, uh, he helped to organise things and acted as a go-between, as you'd expect, translator between Humaban and the Spaniards. And so, with everything organised, on the 1st of May, uh, 1521, Barbosa, Serrano, and many of the other fleets, uh, many of the fleet's other officers, uh, went ashore for this feast. And they are they are looking forward to it. They can't believe they're like going to go and have this great big, big bloody banquet party, have something to drink, have something to eat, have a great time. But instead what happened was that they were all mercilessly murdered by Hugh Marbin and his people. Enrique had done the Spaniards dirty. He had lied through his teeth. He had gone to Humabin and said, listen, these Spanish, right, they want to capture you, mate. They want to, they want to kidnap you and, uh, and take you away. And, uh, and you better bloody do something about a quick smart. So Humabin organized instead for a bit of a red wedding situation and murdered all of his Spanish guests uh, at, this fe- at this feast. Now, Enrique, after this, fell off the face of, of the earth. He disappeared from history, right? He was, he was never seen or heard from by, uh, by, the, uh, by the Spaniards again. And it's presumed that he headed back to, uh, to his original home by himself. As for what remained of Magellan's fleet, well, it was a bit of a sorry sight, I can tell you that. Only 115 of the 270-something original crew members remained, and this wasn't even enough for them to continue to sail the three ships that they had. As a result, the Conception, it was scuttled and it was set on fire and the remaining men set off once again in search of the Maluka Islands uh, in the remaining two ships, the Trinidad and the Victoria, as the Conception uh, sank beneath the waves and was consigned, of course, to Davy Jones' locker. Now, without Magellan as their leader, uh, with you know, with the with the untimely and very uh, very unexpected death of the the commander of this expedition, it took the uh, the fleet now six months of sailing throughout Southeast Asia, six months of sailing throughout the uh, the East Indies before they finally found the Maluka Islands. Six months spent in fruitless search, odd bit of piracy here and there, no worries at all. They robbed a few passing trade ships, they visited all sorts of islands, had a couple more changes in leadership, and then finally, on the 8th of November, 1521, they at last found and landed on the Maluka Islands, the fabled Spice Islands, and there... The Spaniards enjoyed some good luck for once. The locals were friendly, they submitted to Spanish rule, and they were very ready to trade their spices away. So the fleet set up a trading post, they loaded the Victoria up as full as they could with spices, ready to return to Spain and make a killing. The Trinidad, however, it was a bit worse for wear. It was leaking like mad. They couldn't find a way to repair it after having made an effort to do this. uh, uh, They they just couldn't, they couldn't, uh, you know, there was no quick fix for it. 
And so they decided, therefore, to split up. The Victoria would head back to Spain, while the Trinidad would remain behind, get repaired properly with the time that it would take, and then sail back via the Pacific. However, the Trinidad never made it back to Europe. Once it took to the seas again sometime later, it was captured by the Portuguese and then it was and it sank during a storm. Whoops. So, so far, right, we've lost every single ship but the Victoria. We've had one that, were, that was run aground. We've had one that was taken in a mutiny and sailed back to Spain. We've had one that was set fire and sunk, uh, scuttled deliberately. And we had one that was captured by the, uh, the Portuguese and then sunk in a storm as well. The only ship that remains, the one ship that remains is the Victoria. Full as a gug with spices, it is commanded by a bloke named Juan Sebastian Elcano. Now, Elcano, he made a very interesting decision at this point. He made a very interesting decision indeed. He decided to sail back to Spain via the Indian Ocean. Despite it being controlled by the Portuguese, despite this running contrary to the, uh, the Treaty of Tordesillas, Elcano goes, bugger it, we've got to get home, we've got to do it the safe way, we can't go back through these uncharted waters, we've got to go through the Indian Ocean because at least we know which way we're going there, at least we know, you know, we know how we're going to get home this way, right? So, it was a bit of a risk, uh, admittedly, it, was, uh, it really was a, a bit of a risk, right? But, you know, when you, when you look at it on balance, perhaps it was much less risky than another voyage across the uncharted Pacific. So, they set off from the Molucca Islands on the 21st of December, 1521, and luckily had a an altogether uneventful journey across the Indian Ocean, round of the Cape of Good Hope around five months later on the 5th of May, 1521, and enjoyed a largely uneventful journey uh, as they did so. However, rations grew extremely short uh, on this trip and starvation set in. As they continued north after having gone around the uh, the, uh, the southern tip of Africa there, uh, the rations were reduced to just rice, and 20 crew members died of starvation. It got that bad. As a result, Elcano was forced to put in at a Portuguese port. The Victoria stopped at Cape Verde with a cover story cooked up to explain what they were doing in uh, in waters that otherwise would have put them in violation of the Treaty of Tordesillas, right? The cover story was that they were returning eastward from the Americas rather than the truth they'd just come from, you know, Asia via the Indian Ocean. And they arrived in Cape Verde with this with this story ready to go, you know, so that because they needed to restock, resupply, otherwise they're all going to die of starvation. So this was this was a very desperate attempt here, desperate move, very risky one indeed to to uh, to make landfall at a Portuguese port here when they were so you know in obvious violation of the treaty like this. But they arrived, they made landfall on the 9th of July, fifteen twenty two, or so they thought. You might have already seen this one coming. You might have already figured out what's about to uh, what's about to happen here, right? But the Spaniards had no idea, right? When they went ashore, they were astonished to be told that it wasn't the 9th of July at all. It was, in fact, the 10th. They had marked the days unerringly, but somehow, right, the westward voyage had put them a day behind the rest of the world. And while this might seem very puzzling at first, right, the explanation is actually, it's a very simple one, although it's not immediately obvious. And it, it does kind of, you do kind of have to wrap your, wrap your head around it. It's not, a, it's not, it's not, it, while, while it is simple, it's not necessarily very intuitive. Because while traveling west in the direction that the sun travels through the sky, each day actually lasts a little bit longer for you than it would if you stayed in the same place. Because you delay the sunset while by basically chasing the sun across the sky, right? Now, this is very obvious if you've, you know, if you've, if you've, if you've traveled quickly, if you've ever flown 
from east to west, uh, you'll you'll know. Like, uh, for example, a, a flight from New- Europe to North America, you'll it's very obvious that the day ends up becoming a lot longer because, as you, as you say, you're chasing that sun. But it's not very obvious when you're traveling slowly on a ship. But sure enough, the days and days and days of westward, westward travel, it had all added up to the point that now the Spaniards, their error-free counting of all the days, actually ended up being incorrect at all. And that is why, of course, we have the international dateline today. At some point while crossing the Pacific, you have to set your clock either 24 hours back or forward, depending on whether you're traveling east or west respectively. Otherwise, you end up on the wrong date for everyone else. And it's just, it's astonishing to think that these blokes, they had counted the days perfectly, they'd marked their calendars, and then they ended up coming back to, uh, you know, to another port uh, after having, you know, almost circumnavigated the entire globe, <laughs> only to find that the date was wrong. It, 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 it does take some thinking about, but again, uh, the international date line today clears all of this up, and, and, that's, and that's why it's there, because otherwise traveling westward ends up putting you, uh, putting you in the, uh, you know, uh, uh, completely off kilter. Anyway. Despite the uh, the excellent cover story that the Spaniards had cooked up here uh, to to explain their presence uh, on Cape Verde, the Portuguese they did catch wind of the fact that the Victoria was returning with spices from Asia, and as a result, thirteen crew members were were captured and imprisoned by the Portuguese in Cape Verde. As a result, the others they managed to escape aboard the Victoria, and with Elcano at the helm, right, they sailed back to Spain with their load of spices safely in tow, and so it was that on the 6th of September, 1522, a fortnight shy of three years after they initially set sail, the 18 sailors remaining on the Victoria returned to San Luca de Barrameda in Spain. And a few weeks later, the 13 blokes who had been held by the Portuguese also returned. And over the next few years, five men who had served on the Trinidad also managed to make it back. And these 35 people, led by Juan Sebastian Elcano, are largely credited with being the first people to have ever circumnavigated our planet. And certainly their journey was long, arduous, fraught with peril, filled with adventure, misadventure, danger and death. It was a colossal accomplishment. One that has, of course, been written large in history, one that impacted history for the centuries to come with the opening of a westward passage from Europe to Asia. However, were these people really the first to complete a circumnavigation of the globe? There is, in fact, every chance that they were not. How can this be, you ask? They set off from San Luca de Barrameda, they passed through every point of longitude, they returned to the very same place three years later, and no one had ever done such a thing before, right? Well, perhaps some of you have already noticed they might not have actually been the first to circumnavigate the globe despite this achievement. If you haven't figured it out yet and you like riddles, maybe you want to actually pause the podcast here and have a think about it because you're actually in possession of all the information you need to figure out who may very well have been the first person to circumnavigate the Earth. Bear in mind, we don't know 100% that he was and that it's just a, you know, a, a bit of a guess, although it is a pretty good guess on the whole. The first person to circumnavigate the Earth, it obviously definitely wasn't Magellan, dying halfway through is a rather fatal obstacle to that. And while it may have been Elcano and his crew, there is a very good chance that it was 
in fact, Enrique of Malacca. He may have beaten them all to it. Enrique had been taken as a slave by Magellan in Malacca in 1511. And after that, he was brought back to Europe via the Indian Ocean. And then he sailed across the Atlantic in 1519, across the Pacific in 1520, and arrived back in Southeast Asia in 1521. Now, while he fell off the historical records after that ill-fated banquet, there is, of course, every chance that he returned to his homeland, either Malacca or Sumatra. And if he did so, he then would have been the very first person. He would have the distinct honour of being the first person in history to pass through every line of longitude and return to his place of origin, the very first person in the history of Earth. Now, of course, we don't know for certain that it was him. We'll never know for certain where, who it actually was. But there's a very good chance that Old Maid Enrique made it back home and in doing so broke new ground in history. And, and again, as I say, has the distinct honour of being the very first person in history to circumnavigate the globe. Anyway, the Magellan Expedition, it was a monumental undertaking and it forever shifted our understanding of the planet on which we lived. It opened a trade route across the Pacific five centuries ago and this was another huge step towards the interconnected, globalised world that we live in today. These days, of course, we've got everything from the Panama Canal to international air travel, of course. But Magellan and later Elcano, they led a voyage that would go on to have a fundamental impact on the development of the modern world. And irrespective of whether it was Elcano and his crew or Enrique months and months before them, the completion of the first circumnavigation of the Earth was an extraordinary accomplishment and one that is very worthy of our remembrance. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the first circumnavigation of the Earth. And regardless, again, of who got across the line in the first place, it is a very, very interesting story and a lot to learn, a lot to take away from it. Was a bloody long one this week. It definitely blew out a little bit. Uh, so we'll get through the house, housekeeping stuff nice and quickie. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, is the website. You can use the contact form to get in touch. Or you can jump onto the new Discord server that I've set up, bit.ly slash Discord. And there's a dedicated Half House History suggestions uh, box there. And, of course, a place that you can come and discuss the latest episodes if you uh, if you want to chat about it with other fans. Uh, and myself, I'll be there as well to have a, have a chat with you if you like. Um, if you want to buy some merch, we are uh, we are sort of uh, – the stocks are dwindling. So, uh, so be quick. Uh, uh, bigcartel.halfarsehistory.com. You can go buy a t-shirt or uh, a notebook. I'm nearly out of badges, so if you want them, you better be quick. And the magnets, of course, have sold out. Um, and if you want to support the show on Patreon, of course, you can do that. Uh, a couple of new Patreon members uh, have joined up recently, so thank you very, very much to those of you who have, have just signed up. And, of course, a big thank you to those who have been with me for uh, for, for so very, very long. It is it, it is so wonderful, so humbling to have so much, uh, so much incredible support from so many people. So thank you to everyone. And also thank you to you for just listening to this show. Thanks for listening to this dumb show. I appreciate your uh, your patronage week in week out, regardless of whether that patronage takes a uh, a fiscal form or just by uh, by hanging out and listening to a little bit of history every week. Thank you so much for being part of it. Anyway, that is that for this week. I'll be back, of course, with uh, more half hour history next week. Looking forward to it. Please do hit me up with those topic suggestions, and I'll uh, I'll see you back here for for more uh, history in a week's time. But in the meantime, of course, leaving you, as usual, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes from Reddit historian Abu Ben Adhem, who asks, 
When Magellan circumnavigated the globe, well, he actually didn't, Abu Ben Adam, but, uh, well, obviously, obviously, Abu Ben Adam needs to listen to this episode. Anyway, when Magellan circumnavigated the globe, at what point did he flip his ships upside down? 